Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. Today we are continuing our quest through the book of Numbers, and we are delighted to be on the other side of all the genealogies, and we have also got through most of those chapters that deal with the rehashing of the Levitical regulations and responsibilities, and now we're into some more exciting terrain. We are reading some narratives um, that describe a lot of action and a lot of uh, a lot of things that would make itself into a really good movie if you were to go to the movie theater and watch. However, it is a little bit disappointing and frustrating as you read through this portion of scripture because what we see is God's people begin to vie for power and there is a struggle that ensues as people begin to try to get that position of privilege that Moses has been appointed by God. Um, so this is a unique uh, situation here where a harmonious people that we talked about in the previous episode are now beginning to break apart. And this begins in chapter 12 with Moses' own family members, his sister and his brother, uh, Aaron and Miriam. They look at Moses and they think, look, he, look at his wife. Because of who he married, they believe that he should not be of any higher privilege than them when it comes to accessing God, uh, which means that they are basing the privilege of being the mediator between God and man based upon human circumstances and worldly circumstances. But God's appointing of Moses was not based on worldly circumstances. It was based upon his divine choosing. He chose to put Moses and call him to be the mediator, the go-between between himself and the people. And obviously Aaron and the priesthood, they are mediators, uh, but to a lesser degree. Moses is the only one that gets to walk into um, the tabernacle when it's glowing and when um, God's Shekinah glory is on display. He's the only one that could go up Sinai. I mean, he has special privileges. Um, and People are beginning to challenge that, but it doesn't go well for them. So what we have in chapter 12 is God brings a leprous condition upon Miriam, and the cloud moves off of the tabernacle, which would normally be an indicator that it's time to move on. It's time to pack up, and it's time to haul the tabernacle contents to the next location. Uh, but instead, they end up having to sit and wait for Miriam to go through the prescribed waiting period that would have been uh, a necessity for those who were unclean in other circumstances. And so she's outside the camp. She's waiting for the uh, allotted days to go by before she could come back in. And so they wait for her. And once she is ceremonially pronounced clean, they take up the tabernacle and they move on to follow the cloud. Uh, so I don't know, it doesn't say specifically, but I take it that the cloud moved on a little bit ahead of them. And normally they were right there with the presence of God, but in this situation it has moved ahead and they've been delayed because of sin in the camp. So this is a reminder that uh, sin doesn't just affect yourself, it affects everybody and it causes um, the whole community to struggle in keeping in step with God's revealed will and his plan. Um, the next thing we see in this passage is that the people of Israel fail again in listening to God's promise and believing it and 
trusting in it. Uh, he had told them they would go into the promised land, that he would give them that land, and that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. They send scouts into the land. They come back, and they say, yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants in the land. And then, then they begin to make up creative ways to uh, trick the people and to manipulate people into thinking that it's uninhabitable. They begin to make references to the Nephilim and to giants. Uh, but we know that the Nephilim were pre-flood beings. They were recorded back in Genesis chapter 6. And because they were pre-flood, that means they would have died in the flood. That means that they're no longer present in the land. So not only does this ignore uh, the theological history of God's people and of God's creation, um, but it is making assumptions that they certainly have no proof of. They just go in and they see a strong group of people, and they probably are big, or some of them are big. They're probably not all big. Um, there's no indication that everybody in the land was a giant. Um, if they go in and they see Rahab, she doesn't appear to them as a 10-foot-tall woman or anything like that. Everybody they encounter going forward uh, in the narrative seems to be of average size until you get to the Philistine giant Goliath, uh, which is way later on. And so they're probably letting their imaginations run wild here, and they're simply stating that they don't believe that they can conquer these people uh, and their uh, technology and their fortified cities. They just think it's too much, and so they begin to uh, just express that in as many ways as they can to sway people to their opinion. They don't want to go in there and die, but they've forgotten the most important thing. And, and Caleb and Joshua, they remember that God has promised to give this to them. And because they don't live up to the promise, the people don't trust in the promise of God, God removes them. He says, you're not going in. And this is the first time that God has kind of put his foot down and he says, no, I'm not letting these people in. Even though Moses intercedes on their behalf and he says, Lord, um, if you don't spare the people, then Egypt will laugh at us. And they'll say that God wasn't able to deliver them from Egypt and bring them into the promised land. But God makes a compromise. He says, I'm going to bring people in. I'm not going to destroy the whole nation, but I'm not going to let this group of people. It's going to be uh, the next generation. And so everybody uh, 20 years old and older, they end up dying in the wilderness over a 40-year period. Uh, some of them die of plagues immediately. Some of them are dumb enough Though they wouldn't go to battle with God on their side and with the Ark of the Covenant and with Moses in their company, they decide after this to charge the enemy line without the Ark of the Covenant, without Moses, and they end up dying by the sword. Uh, which is very interesting that they would try this, even though the day before they were completely hesitant to go into battle, even with God's promises and God's presence. Um, but I think it was a, an act of desperation. It's sort of was their last opportunity, and God had already made it clear that they were not going to enter the promised land, and that dawned on them. They would not get to go in under any circumstance. They would not get to enter God's promised land. They would not get to enter God's rest, and now they're starting to realize the mistake that they made and how how terrible that is, that they 
are not going to get to experience the blessing of the promised land that they could have had they done the right thing. They don't know what else to do. Uh, maybe the fact that they get to just charge into the promised land and fight, even though they're going to die, they at least get to die uh, inside the land or at least close to it as they charge the enemy. Um, but nonetheless, they do not make it in. They die as a consequence of their sin. And so once more, we have this broken Israel that's unable to live up to the, the covenant stipulations that were laid out in the Ten Commandments and beyond. And because of that, they're not able to enter into God's rest. They're not entering into his rental property because they can't uphold the rental agreement even before they step foot into the property. And this doesn't stop here. It continues to get worse. You get on to the next couple of chapters, and now you have the rebellion of Korah. Now, Korah is a Levite and a head of a clan, and he gathers a bunch of people to confront Moses and Aaron, and he, they challenge their authority, just like Aaron and Miriam did earlier, challenging Moses' authority. Now the challenge comes to Moses and Aaron because they believe that everybody's holy. Everybody has access to God. And um, if we have any kind of New Testament uh, correlation here, it would be that there are other ways to access God besides the one prescribed way that the New Testament is laid out. And in the New Testament, that one way to access God is through Jesus Christ, the Son. He is the high priest. He's the new Moses, the new high priest. Um, he is the one who now stands as our Moses and our Aaron who makes intercession on our behalf. He goes to the Father, and that's why he said, no one can come to the Father except through me. And so anyone who comes and challenges that and says, oh, well, I, I can access Jesus through uh, Mohammed. I can access Jesus through Mary. I can access Jesus through, and you name whoever it is, uh, you're going a different route. You're challenging the prescription that God has laid out in the New Testament, that only through the Son. He's the only way that you can access God. And if you have a problem with that, you're making the same mistake that Korah is making here. And so Korah gathers all these people, they confront Moses and Aaron, they challenge them, and it ends up just the same as it did when Miriam and Aaron challenged Moses. God defends his appointment of Moses, and he defends um, this Mosaic authority that has been put on Moses. And what he ends up doing is making the ground swallow up some of them and fire burn up others. And it just, once again, we see this people that was supposed to be growing in numbers to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. It's beginning to shrink now because of their rebellion and their sinfulness. Now, God's going to still uphold his promise of descendants. They're going to enter the land. They're going to continue to multiply and be fruitful. But we do see some backtracking in the development of this covenantal promise because of the sinfulness of the people. God will always uphold his end of the bargain. The problem is, are we going to participate? Are we going to um, be a part of his covenantal promise? Or are we going to take ourselves out of the equation through our own sinfulness? And that's exactly what some of these people are doing. Now, I did find one interesting fact as I was reading through this. I started to notice that every time someone confronted Moses, and it doesn't stop with Korah's rebellion. The very next day, you get another group of people that come and start complaining, and people want to go back to Egypt. And um, 
it's just one grumbling and complaining fest after another, even though God continues to do these miraculous works and demonstrate his power and demonstrate his presence among the people. They still don't get it in their heads that God is uh, in charge here, and he's going to bring things about, um, even through miraculous power. But as people challenge Moses, it seems every time that someone comes up to Moses and says, you're not the man for the job, you're not God's person, um, this isn't God's way, Moses' response is to fall on his face before them. Now, that's not like most people. If you come up and you challenge someone, uh, you know, someone comes up to me and says, you're a terrible pastor, you shouldn't be the pastor of this church, you shouldn't be speaking in any capacity whatsoever, you're not God's man, God hasn't called you, and they start throwing all these accusations at me, um, I mean, I would try to be humble in that situation, and I would try to talk with them in that situation, but uh, the last thing I'd probably do would be to fall on my face before them. Um, but that's Moses' personality. In fact, the scriptures say that Moses was the meekest person to ever live, and this is very evident in the fact that he doesn't fight his own battles. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't try to push back and say, I'm the guy, I'm the man. Uh, rather, he lets God defend him, and he does so from a very humble posture and a very humble um, attitude, and I think we could learn a lot from that. The final thing I'll bring up uh, in this episode is that we return to another discussion of offerings in chapter 15, and a lot has gone on as far as action is concerned, and now we get right back into burnt offerings and wine offerings and oil and, uh, you know, food offerings of different kinds. And you may be asking yourself, why are we doing this again? We already did this. Well, I think one of the reasons that we have to return to those is because a lot of the people that were probably highly involved in the offering contributions and preparation uh, are now dead and gone. Some of them were probably wrapped up in Korah's rebellion. Some of them were those who wanted to enter the promised land after the fact or uh, didn't agree to God's promises and were consumed um, in the wilderness. And, and furthermore, even if there are people who were involved and people who were already knowledgeable about these offerings and what they were to do, they've not been doing a good job of listening to God. And so it's once again, needed to be repeated so that people will do the right thing. And a lot of the offerings mentioned in these sections are about sin and not just intentional sin, but unintentional sin. And he's reminding the people that their relationship with God is a little bit strained right now. And so they might want to bear down a little more on some of these offerings and to trust in God a bit more. I think if we could take one thing away from this entire section is that we need to trust God and not lean on our own understanding. Even when everything in the world is stacked against what God has said and it seems that all evidence is pointing contrary to God's word and his declaration, we must trust God above all else. If he has made it clear and he's revealed what his will is, if he's revealed truth to us in a way that is um, certainly interpreted correctly, we need to lean on that above all human understanding, all human reason, all philosophy, all ideology, because God's word is the ultimate source of truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. 
We're going to stop there for today, and we will pick up next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast. <laughs>